From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. In this hour, NPR's Joel Rose at the U.S.-Mexico border where frustration mounts with an app. La página abría a las 9 de la mañana y ya a las 9 y 1, si no te registrabas, perdía. The app opens up at 9 a.m. and at 9.01, you can't register. It's a waste of time, even now that it's been updated. Also, Ron Elving on a week that includes the border, the debt deadline, and Donald Trump back in the arena. Later, why is Saudi Arabia suddenly spending so much on world sports? And John Burnett with a story about singing the blues in a place where they feel it, a Mississippi prison. First, our newscast at Saturday, May 13, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. There is uncertainty at the southern border with Mexico over what happens now that the pandemic-era restrictions known as Title 42 ended Thursday night. Border cities are bracing for a potential surge in migrants, but the Biden administration says border crossings are not as busy as predicted. Meanwhile, New York Governor Kathy Hochul is calling on President Biden to send federal resources to her state to help deal with an increase in asylum seekers. From member station WAMC, Jim Lavulis reports. Thousands of migrants have already arrived in New York City and plans to move some of them upstate have faced opposition. Hochul is requesting the Biden administration direct the Department of Defense and the National Park Service to build and operate temporary shelters on federal lands and property to house migrants. The governor suggested using a portion of Floyd Bennett Field within the Gateway National Recreation Area and military installations across the Northeast. Hochul already issued an executive order allowing the state to spend money to address the situation and mobilize 1,500 National Guard members. For NPR News, I'm Jim Lavulis in Albany. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen stressing the importance of a strong global financial system and a diversified supply chain. Spillovers from Russia's war against Ukraine and disruptions caused by the pandemic have made clear the importance of diversified and resilient supply chains. Secretary Yellen speaking in Japan today, where she and other group of seven finance ministers have wrapped up three days of meetings with a year-end deadline to launch an effort to shore up supply chains that communicate the issue does not mention the debt ceiling stalemate in Washington, but it did refer to heightened uncertainty about the global economic outlook. China says it will send a special diplomatic envoy to Kiev next week to promote an end to Russia's war in Ukraine, but NPR's John Ruich reports that Western countries are skeptical of China acting as a neutral peace broker. The Chinese government's special representative on Eurasian affairs is a longtime diplomat named Li Hui. He's been in the role since 2019 after spending a decade as ambassador to Russia. On Monday, Li heads to Ukraine, Poland, France, Germany, and Russia, according to the foreign ministry. A ministry spokesman says the purpose is to communicate with all parties on a political solution to the Ukrainian crisis. Chinese officials say Beijing wants to see an end to the war, but China's relationship with Russia has deepened over the past year, and it's refused to criticize Moscow for the invasion. U.S. officials have even said they think the Chinese government has considered sending arms to Russia to support the war effort, a claim Beijing denies. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Rome today meeting with top Italian government officials. He is also to meet with Pope Francis. And from Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. 
The superintendent of a regional vocational school in Lexington has been placed on administrative leave. The Boston Globe reports that Minuteman High School School Committee says it's investigating complaints against Superintendent Kathleen Dawson. She recently received a vote of no confidence from the school's faculty association. Independent legal counsel will investigate those allegations. Dawson told the Globe that the complaints were about her interactions with students and staff and concerns about teachers' working conditions from their union. Mount Washington's Auto Road is opening for this season today. Drivers can head to the summit from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. today. Crews have gotten the road back up and running after heavy rains washed out portions of it earlier this month. Guided tours begin on May 27th and operate daily for the season. It's Porchfest season. The city of Somerville kicks it off today with more than 200 local bands, including the one you're hearing now, Here Boy, making music on porches, on stoops, and in yards across the city, and it's all free. The Somerville Arts Council's Heather Balchunas says the event marks a special time for the city. Some people, they've moved away from Somerville, and they've come back, and they said, well, when is Porch Fest? Because I want to schedule my vacation around that. And that definitely speaks to the appreciation both on the music end and also on the audience end of things. And there is a full schedule at Somerville's Arts Council's website. Porch Fest will be held in early June in Dorchester, Medford, and Newton. The season wraps up in September. In sports, the Red Sox lost to the Cardinals 8-6 at Fenway. They play again today. The Revolution are on the road against Miami tonight. And our forecast, mostly sunny today, upper 70s. Mostly clear tonight with a low in the low 50s. For tomorrow, sunshine bright, upper 60s. Monday, sunshine mid-70s. And for Tuesday, partly sunny, upper 70s. 69 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for joining us. We're going to begin at the U.S.-Mexico border where it's back to rules put in place before March of 2020. The government no longer strictly limiting asylum seekers. Thousands of migrants are waiting to be processed. In a moment, we'll hear from the border about how an app rolled out to help the process just isn't working. Right now, NPR's Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Uh, So far... Uh, a big rush did not happen. Uh, doesn't matter, but that doesn't matter when it comes to political implications of this issue, does it? Well, you know, it could if it suggests that the magnitude of this problem might be more manageable than feared. Uh, that's a big if, of course. But in a political sense, as you suggest, the actual numbers are less important than the images projected because the political fallout will be defined not by what's actually happening on the border but largely by those seeking ways to exploit it. And over the weeks and months to come, every ebb and flow at the border, every tragic incident, it's going to make people uneasy, and that will reflect badly on the Biden administration, fairly or not. And you have people on one side telling Biden, you know, you waited too long to get tougher on the border. Other people saying, you know, you're betraying your promises. Uh, There is no safe ground for him, and there won't be any going forward. 
Congressional leaders met at the White House this week uh, on the debt ceiling the nation's about to reach. Another meeting set for next week. Are these signs of progress? This week's meeting was largely for show, but you need a first meeting like that just to turn the key in the ignition. It was also needed to reassure the public and the markets and to fully engage the staff people who will be doing most of the work, looking for potential areas of agreement as they have in the past. Postponing Friday's meeting might have been an indication that progress was happening. That's the hopeful read. But the staff have to work fast because neither Biden nor the Congress is expected to be in town much for the rest of May. And we've been told June 1st brings us to the brink of default. So up to now, all parties have been rooted in their positions. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is especially talking tough. Mm -hmm. But everyone understands that. He has to. He's got the hardest job of all, getting the House Republicans to vote for something they've said they won't. And he can't pick up a few votes from Democrats because that might well make his tenure as speaker the shortest in history. Former President Trump spoke to what was billed as a town hall meeting on CNN this week. What was your impression? Trump gave a preview of his 2024 campaign or a reprise of his previous campaigns. Take your pick. He clung to his insistence that the 2020 election was rigged, once again offering no evidence. He praised the rioters at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, promising pardons for at least some of them if he returns to office. He continued to defame E. Jean Carroll, the woman who was awarded $5 million in court in New York last week Mm -hmm. for previous defamations and a sexual assault by Trump. He wildly exaggerated the numbers of migrants at the southern border, as he has countless times before. And you know, Scott, a few of us still remember when a guy named Richard Nixon ran for president as, quote, the new Nixon. Well, don't look for the new Trump. That's not happening. There's been a lot of criticism uh, of CNN for presenting that event. What do you what do you make of their response and how they presented it? The CNN CEO says it was just an interview with a front-running candidate. But that paints a different picture from what we saw. What CNN called a town hall was largely a Trump rally compressed into a small auditorium. Let me pause to salute CNN correspondent Caitlin Collins. She did everything she could to bring Trump back to planet reality. He rewarded her by calling her a nasty person on the air. It all recalled the coverage of Trump in 2015 and 16 when CNN and others discovered they could boost ratings by ignoring the rest of the Republican field, featuring Trump rallies from start to finish. There was criticism then, too, but there was also profit. People watched, some in fascination, some in horror, but people watched, and here we are again. And here's Ron Elvin. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Now that Title 42 has expired and the Biden administration is relying on other tools to try to manage the U.S.-Mexico border. That includes a mobile app called CBP-1, which is now the main path for migrants seeking asylum there. This week, the Biden administration rolled out a major overhaul of the app, but as NPR's Joel Rose reports, some migrants say it still doesn't work. At the foot of the Paso del Norte International Bridge in downtown Ciudad Juarez, a half dozen men from Venezuela are hunched over their phones. One by one, they look up in disappointment with a familiar message on their phone screens, system error. When you log in, the app kicks you out. This is Luis Suarez, who's 37 years old from outside Caracas. The app he's talking about is CBP-1, and it's currently the only authorized way for migrants like Suarez to sign up for an interview at the port of entry just across the bridge in El Paso where they can begin the process of seeking asylum in the U.S. 
Suarez says he's been here for six months trying to get an appointment with no luck. La página abría a las nueve de la mañana y ya a las nueve y uno, si no te registrabas, perdía. The app opens up at 9 a.m., and at 9.01, you can't register. It's a waste of time, even now that it's been updated. This has become a familiar sight in Mexican border towns. CBP-1 has been plagued by glitches since its launch earlier this year. This week, U.S. immigration authorities made some major changes to the app that are supposed to make it work better. But these men by the bridge in Juarez say that's not happening. It sends you back to the beginning, and when you try again, the appointments are gone. You have to wait until the next day. Immigration authorities say they have heard these complaints about CBP-1, and they've been trying to make improvements to the app. They've increased the number of appointments available, from 750 to approximately 1,000 per day border-wide. And those appointments are now available throughout the day, instead of at the same time. We believe that the changes have been uh, working well. Blas Nunez Neto is a senior immigration official at the Department of Homeland Security. He says there may be some, quote, minor issues with the technology, but the main problem is volume. Even with more appointments available, it's still not enough. We fully appreciate that there is strong demand for the thousand slots that will be available, but we believe the new process will be much better for everybody. Immigration authorities say they've also tweaked the CBP-1 scheduling system to prioritize migrants who have been waiting the longest for an appointment. But again, migrants in Juarez say that's not what they're seeing. Carlos Carrillo is a 23-year-old from Carabobo, Venezuela, who says he's been here since January. Just trying the app, the app, I've been at it for more than four months now. Despite his frustration with the app, Carrillo says he'll keep trying. That's not even an option for Denise Hernandez, another asylum seeker from Maracaibo, Venezuela, because she doesn't have a phone. It's a lot of hardship, but I'm not blaming anyone because we made our own decisions. Hernandez, who is 52, says she was a political activist in Venezuela and can't go back. Her family crossed the border earlier this week to ask for asylum. Her daughter and grandson were allowed into the U.S., but Hernandez and her husband were both expelled. He was returned to Juarez, while she was sent to Piedras Negras, almost 500 miles away. She took a train back to Juarez, which is when she says she was robbed of the only phone they had. We have to wait to get another phone and try it through the app. Otherwise, we will be turned back again. I'm afraid. Hernandez and her husband are hoping to earn enough money to buy a new phone so that they can try the CBP-1 app again. For now, they're sleeping in a tent on the street a few blocks from the Paso del Norte Bridge, with the El Paso skyline clearly visible just across the Rio Grande. Joel Rose, NPR News, Juarez, Mexico. The American Library Association and PEN America say there's been a sharp increase in the number of books pulled from school libraries over the past two years. One complaint that a book is obscene or offensive from a parent or increasingly a group can be enough to have it removed from the shelves. The books that get singled out often feature main characters who are LGBTQIA or people of color. Many just racism, child abuse, sex, suicide, and other topics that young people may want help understanding. Some of the most pulled titles include Genderqueer, a memoir by Maya Kobabe, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, Looking for Alaska by John Green, and The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. 
I wonder if those who want to keep certain books out of school libraries have thought through how many teens and adolescents react when they're told not to read something. They do it anyway, and avidly. They wonder, I certainly did, what are adults trying to keep from me? If you read an unapproved book, there are no pop quizzes. You don't have to highlight, underline, or answer test questions like, what's the symbolism of the penguin in the garage on page 87? There's no 500-word essay with a thesis paragraph and quotes. You can just enjoy it or not. No teacher will scold. Can't you see it's a classic? You can read books you're not supposed to for fun, excitement, to learn something, or just to get lost in the story. But Laurie Hall-Sanderson, the acclaimed writer of young adult novels, cautions me. Her much-honored novel, Speak, narrated by a teen rape survivor, has been pulled from quite a few library shelves, too. Even if bans or challenges make a book more intriguing, Laurie reminded us, many of our nation's children will not be able to access books that are removed. Millions of our families can't afford to buy books. Countless families live in library deserts, areas without a reachable public library. And libraries across the country are struggling with horrifying budget cuts. Libraries are meant to be places where you can wander, browse, try on thoughts, read, reject, rejoice, or simply brood about the world. Books shouldn't be treated like landmines that have to be removed before they can light up our minds. And you're listening to NPR News. If your mom, wife, or daughter loves flowers, send them Winston Flowers for Mother's Day and help give WBUR a strong future. Choose from orchids or roses or seasonal flowers every month. Your last chance to choose the perfect gift is today at noon. Go to WBUR.org. And coming up in about 20 minutes, author Hernan Diaz on his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Trust. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. And Farmer Scott's heirloom tomato plant sale at Gore Place. 40 tomato varieties ready for your garden. This weekend in Waltham, goreplace.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. With the end of the COVID-era rules known as Title 42, the feared chaos at the U.S.-Mexico border has not materialized. The Homeland Security Department says that while there are high levels of migrants at the border, there's been no substantial increase in people trying to cross into the United States. Both former President Trump and a potential rival for the GOP nomination, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, are scheduled to be in Iowa today. In an unusually early heat wave expected to start today in parts of the Pacific Northwest. Temperatures are expected to hit the 90s in Portland and Seattle. The heat could worsen the wildfires that are burning in western Canada. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, celebrating its 75th anniversary, using data to make a difference and addressing the challenges of a changing world. Learn more at pewtrusts.org. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Here are some of the things that have happened at Twitter since Elon Musk took over last fall. Advertisers have fled. Hate speech has soared. More than 80% of employees have been laid off or left. Now, Mr. Musk says he's turning a page and handing the reins over to a new CEO. Does this mean Twitter will change? NPR tech correspondent Dara Kerr joins us. Dara, thanks so much for being with us. Of course. Hello. Uh, Mr. Musk announced yesterday he's hired uh, an ad exec from NBC Universal and says she will focus on business operations. What do we know about her? Yeah, so her name is Linda Yaccarino, and she's had a long and conventional career in advertising, from Turner Broadcasting to NBC Universal. And at NBC, she rose to be the head of all global advertising. She's known for her savvy and behind-the-scenes power brokering. And by choosing Yaccarino, Musk is signaling that he's looking to placate Twitter's advertisers. They've fled the sites over the past few months. And Yaccarino also appears to be a Musk super fan. I took a look through her Twitter profile and saw that she often likes his tweets and mentions him in posts. Last month, she interviewed Musk on stage at an advertising event in Miami. And during that interview, you can hear some of her praise. It's widely known that in the morning, you run SpaceX. In the oh. afternoon, you head to Tesla. And in the evening, it's Twitter time. And many of you in this room know me, and you know I pride myself on my work ethic. But, buddy, I met my match. So, Derek, can we anticipate that Elon Musk uh, will be less active on Twitter? Not necessarily. He said he's staying on as executive chairman and chief technology officer. He'll still oversee product and software, which is the major part of Twitter's business. He'll also still be the sole owner of the company. I asked Joe Ellen Posner, an associate professor of management at Santa Clara University, how much of a change there could be at Twitter with Yaccarino coming on board. I always feel that with Elon Musk, He's so unpredictable that it's really impossible to predict how things are going to play out. She said rebuilding relationships with advertisers might not be enough. Instead, Twitter needs to solve the problem that drove away the advertisers in the first place. And what is that problem? Why have advertisers left? So since Musk took over, he said his number one focus is, quote, free speech. So in his view, that's basically letting anyone say whatever they want on the platform, whether it be white supremacists posting hate speech or Russian leaders calling to exterminate Ukraine. And things don't seem to be changing. Just this last week, there were several news reports about gory videos surging on the site, videos that showed mistreatment of animals and the mass shooting in Texas last weekend. And advertisers don't want to be associated with that. It's unclear if those types of posts will go away with Yaccarino coming on board. NPR's Derek Kerr, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. U.S. hospitals have seen a record number of cyber attacks over the past few years. 
Getting hacked can cost a hospital millions of dollars, but it also puts the lives of patients at risk. Side effect public media's Farah Yusri went inside one Midwest hospital to learn how a cyber attack touched every aspect of patient care. At Johnson Memorial Health in central Indiana, the obstetrics nurses work out of a central hub across from patient rooms. Some type medical notes on their computers as they keep a close eye on the maternal and fetal monitors. Yeah, something is going on, so we need to go into the room and let make sure the baby's heart rate, you know, is tracing well. And This is what it's like when things are running smoothly. But a year and a half ago, the hospital was thrust into a nightmare. Stacy Hummel manages the obstetrics unit. I got a call Friday morning or Saturday morning at like five. Um, did you know that they that our computers went down? And I'm like, no, I didn't. It was October 2021, and the hospital was under cyber attack. Hummel couldn't do simple tasks like access medical records. The hackers posted their demand on the hospital servers, a ransom of three million dollars. Hospital leaders were advised by cybersecurity experts not to pay the ransom and to limit the hackers' access to critical systems. So the entire hospital went offline. The staff went back to paper notes. They had runners go back and forth between different departments to share orders and lab results. It was almost like the clock was turned back a few decades. Hummel says the cyber attack was the hardest thing she went through in her 24 years as a nurse even worse than COVID. You know, we're like sitting here, oh, I hope the fetal monitors don't shut down. I hope they don't shut down. And then they did. Suddenly, they worried they'd miss critical data points, like dangerously low fetal heart rates. But once that happened, we had to station a nurse in every single room. So staffing was a nightmare because you had to stand there and watch the monitor. We couldn't watch it out at the desk, so. The cyber attack upended even the simplest tasks they once took for granted. Hummel tells me the nurses were struggling with a patient in labor. That was a refugee from Afghanistan. And the woman did not speak English. We had no way to communicate with them because our language line is on the iPad. (laughs) So people were using their personal cell phones to Google Translate with this Afghan refugee who's in labor. It was very difficult. Other departments at Johnson Memorial were affected too. For weeks, the ER had to divert ambulances with the sickest patients to other hospitals. John Regi is the National Cybersecurity and Risk Advisor at the American Hospital Association. He says ransomware attacks on hospitals are increasing. We've had cyber attacks impacting Uh, Direct attacks on hospitals then resulting in the impact of other hospitals, probably affecting over 250 hospitals just last year. Studies suggest that a cyber attack can cost a hospital more than $10 million, excluding any ransom payments. Patient complications may also increase following an attack. It took nearly six months for Johnson Memorial in Indiana to get their systems back to normal after the attack. But they still deal with the fallout. The hospital had to beef up staffing levels, which cost money. With computers down, they couldn't bill for services, so money wasn't coming in. Most hospitals have insurance to protect them against cyber attacks, but they can still be on the hook for millions of dollars. Here's Johnson Memorial's CEO, Dr. David Dunkel. It's tough. I mean, you know, that was a huge financial hit to the organization in 2021. Here we are in 2023, and... Our claim has still not been processed. 
meaning they're still waiting for their payout from their cyber insurance nearly two years later. And because they were attacked, that insurance premium has more than doubled. Dunkel says his hospital has been doing more to train staff and invest in resilient cybersecurity systems. But I tell people, if the Pentagon can be hacked, don't think you can't be. Federal agencies have successfully gone after some big hacker groups. Still, hospital leaders want more government resources to help hospitals prevent attacks and recover afterwards. For NPR News, I'm Farah Yusri in Indianapolis, Indiana. And that story comes from NPR's partnership with WFYI and KFF Health News. Sports are having a moment in Saudi Arabia, a big, expensive moment, from golf to tennis and now soccer. Saudis are spending heavily on athletes, teams, international competitions, often with money tied directly to the ruling royal family. Lionel Messi, the Argentine forward who led his country to a World Cup last fall, could end up on a Saudi team. Several Spanish media outlets reported this week he's been offered, get set for this, $300 million a year to play in Saudi Arabia. It would make him the world's highest paid athlete by far. Why would a country that has never won an Olympic gold medal spend so much on sports? We're going to bring in John Wertheim, executive editor of Sports Illustrated, and he recently traveled to Saudi Arabia to report this story for CBS's 60 Minutes. John, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure, Scott. Always a pleasure. New golf tour, top-tier tennis competition, now showering money on soccer stars. Uh, Why are Saudi rulers spending so much money on sports, do you think? They will tell you, and they told me, this is done as a way to inspire the youth of Saudi Arabia. This is a way to bring attention to the kingdom. This is a way to get kids to play sports. And um, I think there's there's a more cynical explanation others might have, which is that this is soft power. This is the sports washing is, is the voguish term, but this is a way to use sports to paper over some pretty dubious human rights records. You you spoke with the Saudi minister for sport. We did for for quite a bit of time. And he and he said he told you what? Notice how I don't have to guess that it's a he or a she. Well, that that's part of the issue. It, it is indeed a he. And um, yeah, I mean, he stuck to the party line, which is essentially we are using sports to inspire the youth of the kingdom, and this is a way to attract tourists. They're, they were very quick to add this is not just professional sports, but you know, the, the winners of the Saudi game, the sort of national competition, were getting $250,000. So if you're the top ping pong player in, in Saudi Arabia or, uh, you know, the, the top kayaker, you get a quarter of a million dollars. So they were very um, keen on sort of explaining that this is top to bottom and it's grassroots as well as professional golf and tennis and, and soccer. Is all the money being offered from the Saudi royal family? Essentially, I mean, this is all from the, the private investment fund, one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world. And it's chosen to turn on the fire hose and funnel this money into you know, glamorous entertainment and sports and Formula One and golf. This is not the local billionaire owning the local sports team. This is essentially national wealth that right now is being funneled into sports. Do they expect a return on that? investment in in professional sports or is not the kind of not a strict monetary return 
It's, it's a great question. I think that really goes to, to the heart of the issue because in the United States and most of the world, sports return is like any other investment. It's, a, you know, selling enough in media rights and enough in sponsorships and tickets so that, uh, you know, you tur turn a little profit. Um, we saw very few fans in the stands. It's possible Lionel Messi will play in front of some of the smallest crowds of his career if, if and when he plays in Saudi Arabia. It doesn't matter. Um, this is not traditional sports economics, which is why this is such a story to watch. I gather you, you spoke to uh, the, the kingdom's first uh, female boxing coach, too. We did, and I think part of this is that under MBS, under Mohammed bin Salman, um, he stated that sort of ha having a, a more liberalized society is, is a goal, a more open society. Sports are a way to do that. As, as we all know, women were not allowed to drive until a few years ago. There was no freedom of movement. They weren't allowed to get passports without male consent. And now in just a few years, this change, the social change is really accelerated. You can see it expressed in sports. And yeah, I mean, we talked to a female boxing coach and she said, listen, the, the idea that there would be female boxing, much less an infrastructure where you would have coaching and leagues and competition, you got to realize how jarring a transition, a transformation this is. Let me ask you about what issues this brings up for the rest of the world, because as you know, this is a country that stands credibly accused of human rights crimes. Do some of the athletes who've signed huge contracts, I'm thinking of golfers, perhaps Lionel Messi, have any doubts? Do they worry about fan reaction in countries where they want to sell jerseys and sports shoes? Some athletes are rational actors. And whoever cuts the biggest check uh, is, is going to get their uh, going to get their services. Other athletes have real reservations. And I think athletes, more and more of them, have a real choice to make. I think you could make a credible case things are heading in the right direction. But this is still a country that, you know, there's, there's a freedom index and they, they rank 155 out of 165 countries. I mean, there, there's still some real issues of, of human rights and gender equality. Are you willing to play there in exchange for a very, very large check? or at some level, the morals matter. So some athletes have taken the Saudi money, others haven't, but I think more and more athletes are going to be confronted with this, with this choice. John Wertheim, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. On this Mother's Day weekend, a recipe of sorts, passed down for generations. Well, growing up in Phoenix, Maria del Carmen Baracano watched her mother feed her own family and all the children who'd stopped by. She was a kind of mother to many. Reporter Laurel Morales has the story of a young woman who's found a way to keep the memory of her mother alive. In Latin America, when a child scrapes a knee and comes running, it's common to hear a mother say, sana sana, heal, heal, little tail of the frog. If you don't heal today, you'll heal tomorrow. Carmen's mom, Maria Cristina, was so busy, she'd just shorten it. She would just be like, okay, sana sana, okay, now vámonos, let's go. <laughs> 
When it came time for Carmen to have her first baby, her mom stayed by her side to listen, to tell stories, and to cook her comfort foods, family recipes like quinoa con leche and a hot cinnamon drink called atoli. This is how Maria Cristina cared for her nine kids. I don't know how my mom did it, but each of us felt like she would make time for each of us. Two years later, when Carmen was pregnant with her second child, Maria Cristina was having dizzy spells. On the day she was heading to the doctor, she fell, hit her head, and died. She would always tell us, when I die, don't cry, just have a big party. And we ended up having a a funeral for her, and mariachis traveled throughout the state to play for her. Just three months after Maria Cristina died, Carmen had her baby. It seemed impossible to experience this momentous event without her mother to share it. She felt lonely and isolated and quickly fell into a depression. I was grieving deeply, and even though I had a brand new baby, I didn't have her with me at that moment. In the midst of that dark place, she turned to social media. I started a long message via Facebook to people just pretty much telling them I needed help. I needed support. I needed community. The response was immediate. Within the next couple hours, she had a date with 10 other mothers. The group of women started meeting regularly. They talked about parenting and food and Carmen's indigenous Nahua culture. And Carmen discovered the ingredient missing from her life, something called comadrismo. The term comadre means comadre. It actually comes from a Nahuatl word, comale. Comale, this was the person who would help birth the child and then became their godmother. They decided to call themselves the Siwapakli Collective, which means women's medicine. Co-founder Perla Farias says, after having four small children of her own, the group became a refuge where she could speak Spanglish and be understood. And someone always fed her for a change. Coming together just really gave me a lot of comfort and it made me feel like, okay, like I can be a mom in this day and age with my family's teachings and just feel like a sense of community. When it came time for Carmen to deliver her third child, she was having complications and called in the comadres to prepare some dishes her mother Maria Cristina had once cooked for her. Okay, I need a caldo, which is like a stew. I would have to instruct But it was all using my mother's recipes. And that really community care. Having the strong community care is what helped me survive. Through those recipes and the women who prepared them, Maria del Carmen Paracano says she's still co-mothering with her mom, Maria Cristina. For NPR News, I'm Laurel Morales. The story comes to us from the podcast, Two Lives. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. MBTA officials say they likely will not have enough staff to more reliably operate buses and trains for a decade at its current hiring pace. They said in a board of directors subcommittee meeting this week that the agency likely will not meet its staffing goals this fiscal year or next. The Boston Globe reports that it has more than 7,000 budgeted positions for next fiscal year and a little over 5,000 active employees. 
The Wellesley Teachers Union voted Friday night to ratify a new four-year contract, warding off the possibility of a strike. The Boston Globe reports this agreement replaces one that expired last June. And several colleges and universities are holding their commencement ceremonies today. They include Worcester Polytechnic Institute, Babson College, UMass Lowell, Emanuel College, and Berkeley College of Music. 69 degrees at 840. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBWARS Morning Edition. My mom gave me the gift of my family's food, from dal to chicken curry. She taught me to make them the way she and her mom made them, but she also encouraged me to make my own changes. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. Your gift will strengthen journalism that fosters independent thinking. Your last chance to choose the perfect gift is today at noon. Go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at AECF.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Two novels shared the Pulitzer Prize for fiction this week, Barbara Kingsolver for Demon Copperhead and Hernan Diaz for Trust. We spoke with Mr. Diaz when his book was released last year. Trust may make you look differently at, say, a $5 bill. Why are we so sure it can buy a cup of coffee and a muffin? Because... It has a story, a narrative, you might say, that money can buy what we need and maybe what we want and eventually what we may dream about. But what really is money? Trust is a book spun from four narratives, a novel wrought from the tale of the life of Andrew Bevel, a financial baron during the 1929 stock market crash, his attempt to write his own story, his secretary's memoir, and finally the journal left by his deceased wife, Mildred. Here is Hernan Diaz reading from the secretary's memoir, recounting when she applies for her job. Why work at a place that makes one thing when I could work at a company that makes all things? Because that's what money is, all things. Or at least it can become all things. It's the universal commodity by which we measure all other commodities. And if money is the god among commodities, this With my upturned palm, I drew an arc that encompassed the office and suggested the building beyond it is its high temple. Hernan Diaz joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. An enormous pleasure. What do um, the four narratives help us see that, that let's say, uh, the omniscient voice that includes four viewpoints wouldn't? Well, the novel is concerned to a large extent with the distinction between 
history and fiction. The idea was to present uh, a novel within the novel, a historical document, uh, a memoir, and a personal journal, and um, recruit the reader as a textual detective of sorts, have them ask themselves uh, how reality itself may be the effect of a textual construction, may, may be the effect of different narratives. Bevel is, uh, is not flattered to see his life become the stuff of fiction. In a novel written by a man named Harold Vanner, any more than uh, William Randolph Hearst liked Citizen Kane. Uh, right. The Orson Welles film. But in a sense, can you understand that? Um, I can understand that. And I try to be very sympathetic to, to this character. I tried at all times to avoid creating a straw man. I tried to give him humanity. I tried to give him certain dignity, uh, despite his actions uh, being so despicable. And, uh, and I think this comes to light in his private life, in his marriage, because this is not just a, a sweeping picture of, of American politics or American finance at the time. It is also very, very much uh, a story about intimacy, a story about marriage with his wife, who is, I would say, the central character of this book. And let us talk uh, about Mildred, who dies young and beloved. Did she win a lottery in life to become part of such wealth and be a patron of the arts and a philanthropist, or, or was she squelched somehow? Hmm. Well, look, I find uh, reading about wealth in America, both in history and in fiction, women have been completely and utterly erased from those narratives. If they appear in narratives of wealth, it is uh, with mostly three pre-assigned roles, either as wives, as secretaries, or as victims. And I was interested in taking all these three positions, these stereotypical positions, and subverting them. Yes, I, I made a note of something she writes. She says... I discovered a deep well of ambition within. From it, I extracted a dark fuel. Oh, my word, those are chilling words. <laughs> well, I wanted to make sure that at no point Mildred was not a victim, was not a sacrificial lamb. And I think the, the passage that you just quoted shows her agency. And with agency comes uh, responsibility, mistakes, or the possibility of making mistakes, and I wanted to give her that as well. So many characters believe in a market that in time sets values, and I mean it in both senses, in all senses, that sets values aright. Uh, not just Bevel, the financial baron, but in, in fact, his secretary's father is an anarchist. And, and he, in a way, believes in a, a marketplace of ideas that the, that the world will eventually cast off capitalism. In a sense, do novelists have to trust in that too, that people will understand and find what they have to say? I'm always a little terrified to assign intention to readers, and I have to leave this open to be received as it may. And I think, actually, now that you mentioned this, Scott, the book is about this. The book is, to an enormous extent, about this man who's trying to control a narrative. And this is something that I found about wealth in general and wealth in America in particular. Great fortunes have the ability 
to distort and warp the reality around themselves. Furthermore, they have the power to align, to bend reality according to their own designs. I think, in fact, the greatest luxury good today out there is not, you know, mansions or yachts. It is reality itself. I mean, I'm sure it's occurred to you, the richest people in the world own major media platforms. Of course, there was an intimate and an immediate conversation between the book as I was writing it and reality as it unfolded on, on the newspapers. Uh, and I think those men, let's, let's again use that word yeah. with great deliberation, are prime examples of this impulse of bending and aligning reality around a great fortune. And I think we could also tentatively define power as that ability to impose reality onto others. Hernan Diaz, his novel, Trust. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. A pleasure and a great honor. You might remember Candid Camera in one of its many iterations, like the one with Alan Funt. Most of us have two personalities. One we show to the world. The other is only seen when we're caught off guard. Catching people off guard has long been the subject of TV shows almost since the dawn of TV. Either the cameras are hidden or the contestants know about them and somebody doesn't know they're being recorded, right? They're not in on the bit. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Ayesha, the history of prank TV shows and my latest example, Jury Duty is a hit. <laughs> Here's a hint, it's not mean. You can listen on your phone or computer, or you know, just turn on the radio. White recorded Parchment Farm Blues in 1940. It was about the infamous prison labor farm in the Mississippi Delta. But I hope someday I will overcome. Day program at the University of Mississippi has brought blues music back to Parchment. Inmates are taking a college credit course about the blues tradition in American literature. As John Burnett reports, they know a lot about the blues. Nine big men sit attentively at their desks inside the prison. They're wearing green and white striped pants and shirts with MDOC convicts stenciled on the back, Mississippi Department of Corrections. Their crimes range from drug possession to armed robbery to homicide, but inside this austere classroom, they're just college students. The idea of this course is to explore how the themes of the blues bad luck and trouble, sexual escapades, and euphoric freedom get expressed in literary forms. So you, we're doing Hurston today. You've got the Hurston book? I got the Hurston. Good. On this day, Adam Gusso, professor of English and Southern Studies at Ole Miss, is teaching Zora Neale Hurston's masterpiece, Their Eyes Were Watching God. It's about a black woman's turbulent coming of age in 1930s rural Florida. The protagonist, Janie, goes through three husbands. The last one is a rogue and a blues musician named Tea Cake. Tea Cake 
deepens Janie's blues feelings. TK teaches Janie all about the blues in a particular way. He loves her and then he leaves her and then he comes back. That's an incredibly bluesy moment and I'm going to show you connect it with some music. Gus L. opens his laptop and clicks on a link to Bumblebee Blues, recorded by Memphis Minnie nearly a hundred years ago. You stung me this morning, she sings. I've been restless all day long. This is a song about a man putting desire in a woman. Right. Right? An inmate named Christopher Bradley raises his hand. They're just saying that when he leaves, she misses. Just like, hey man, man, I miss my baby. I'd be glad when she get home from work. For these students, the blues songs may be new, but the feeling is all too familiar. In order are Ladale Williams, Mitch Price, and Joe Westbrooks. I never looked at the blues the way I look at the blues now. Like I say, just trials and tribulations, just being here for almost 29 years since I was a child, so that's just blues in itself. My mother's the daughter of a sharecropper, you know, and uh, that's what they did in the fields. They, they sung the blues, you know, uh, at the end of the rows, at break time, when they're eating bologna and crackers and cheese. It's part of my history because I used to hear my family talk about these things, so. You know, it's more to just listen to the blues when you live the blues, because, you know, that's, I, that's our everyday life. You are oppressed daily by being incarcerated. Professor Gusso knows the music both as a scholar and a world-class harmonica player. He has taught this course, the blues tradition in American literature, for 25 years, but never before inside a prison. If you know something about the blues, and of course the blues is not just the music, but it's, it's also life lived hard. Gusso says his typical college undergrads are young with limited life experiences. His Parchman students are grown men, most of them black, and imprisoned. Certain of our students said basically, look, I know about the blues, and they, and they don't mean the music. In some cases, I've taught them things about the music per se that they may not have known, but they all have just taken that term and applied it to the life challenges that they've had and the negativity that they've dealt with. Parchman Farm, officially the Mississippi State Penitentiary, sprawls across 28 square miles of America's musical bottomland, beyond the tall fences and concertina wire, past the green crop fields, are the little agricultural towns that produced some of the greatest bluesmen who ever lived. B.B. King, Albert King, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, Sun House, and Robert Johnson. But life inside the Parchman prison colony was brutal. The institution was set up as a huge state-run plantation. Chain gangs did mandatory field work. Harsh discipline was meted out by the guards and by trusty convicts. Inmate Mitch Price remembers those times. The penitentiary here in, in Parchment was called camps for a reason. They were work camps, which you would sort of say symbolizes slave camps. They put them here to pick cotton, and they would whip them with actual whips. Forced farm labor ended here in the mid-2000s, but problems persist. Last year, the U.S. Justice Department released a scathing audit that concluded inmates still live in, quote, a violent and unsafe environment. A spokesman for the Mississippi Department of Corrections said that federal report does not reflect improved conditions in recent years. 
He pointed to accreditation in January by the American Correctional Association, the first time in nine years. The University of Mississippi has offered college courses inside Parchman on Shakespeare, Mississippi writers, the civil rights movement, and now the blues. The award-winning program is called the Prison to College Pipeline. Patrick Alexander, Associate Professor of English and African American Studies at Ole Miss, is the program's director and co-founder. Alexander says education can play a role in how well an offender does when they re-enter society. We have one student who's gone to Mississippi College, and he traces not just the assignments or the books, but the opportunity to be seen as a leader, something that is not necessarily going to happen when you're inside a parchment. In mid-May, these students will don caps and gowns and attend a graduation ceremony inside the prison for completing the three-course hours. In addition to learning about the blues literary tradition, they get a taste of playing the blues. All right, so here's what we're gonna to try to do. We're gonna to try to do a little, uh, a little call and response. And, and so I'm gonna tap my foot and I'm gonna take the four draw. Can everybody go, just find the four draw? The students are not allowed to take their harmonicas back to their living quarters, so the only practice on the mouth harp they get right. is during these weekly classes. All right, give yourselves a round of applause. That's the best, that's the best we've done. A muscular man with a white goatee and glasses stands up. Arthur Gentry, 65, has been locked up at Parchman for more than four decades. He breaks into spontaneous song with an updated version of the Parchman Prison Blues. I got the penitentiary blues, day in, day out, all through the night, feel the blues. <laughs> for NPR News, I'm John Burnett in Parchman, Mississippi. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from HintWater.com. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR, or Weekend Edition continues. 69 degrees and sunny at 8.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England with their Zootopia Gala, June 10th, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their mission to inspire care and action for wildlife. ZooNewEngland.org. Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Volante Farms in Needham. Featuring farm-to-table meals to go on Wednesdays and Sundays. View menus and order online at volantefarms.com. 
I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Your last chance to choose the perfect gift is today at noon. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the mayor of a New Mexico town as more migrants seek asylum. And later, why Ukraine wants Crimea back. How cyber attacks at hospitals harm patient care. The defending basketball champions defeated. New novel from France tells the real-life story of a family through decades of persecution. And Glenn Howerton on a new film showing a swearing, swaggering exec who helped Blackberry rise and fall within a few clicks of the calendar. I think when he saw that there was a massive niche in the market, it was an opportunity for him to show what he's really made of, and he was a hell of a salesman. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, May 13, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. With the end of the COVID-era rules known as Title 42, the feared chaos at the U.S.-Mexico border has not materialized. Officials had warned of an unprecedented influx of people trying to cross into the United States. But the Homeland Security Department says while there are high levels of migrants at the border, there's been no substantial increase in crossings above what was seen earlier this week. Immigration authorities this week rolled out a major overhaul of the mobile app known as CBP-1. It's now the main pathway for migrants seeking asylum at the border. But as NPR's Joel Rose reports, people in Mexico say the app is still not working for them. In response to complaints from migrants, immigration authorities announced some big changes to the CBP-1 app. They raised the number of appointments at ports of entry to 1,000 per day and tweaked the scheduling system to prioritize migrants who have been waiting the longest. But migrants in Juarez, Mexico, say the results are the same. Frequent errors and no available appointments. A senior immigration official at the Department of Homeland Security says the changes have been, quote, working well, unquote. But there are still not enough appointments to satisfy the demand. Joel Rose, NPR News, El Paso. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Italy today meeting with government officials and Pope Francis amid word that Russian forces have fallen back from the city of Bakhmut. The Russian defense ministry says its forces are simply regrouping to more favorable positions, but the head of Russia's Wagner private army is calling it a rout. The BBC's Hugo Bachega has more. The authorities here say Ukrainian forces have pushed forward one and a half miles on the southern edge of the city, and that Russia suffered heavy casualties. This could be the most significant advance for Ukrainian Bakhmut in months. Russia has been determined to seize the city, to have a victory to celebrate, Ukraine is defending it, trying to inflict losses on its enemy as it prepares a major counteroffensive. 
To Turkey now, it's the last day for campaigning before President Recep Tayyip Erdogan stands for re-election in what's being called his toughest race ever. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports tensions have been on the rise as the campaigning progressed. President Erdogan's main rival, secular politician Kemal Kilic Darolu, took the stage at a rally Friday wearing a bulletproof vest underneath his shirt. His security detail was armed with assault rifles. Erdogan's interior ministry is in a fight with the Supreme Election Council after it demanded the right to collect and store election results on its own database. Some opposition politicians are saying the government is taking steps that could be used to manipulate the results when voters go to the polls Sunday. Some 60 million votes are expected to be cast in what some analysts are calling a crucial test of Turkey's democracy. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is proposing new district maps for the city to its council. Earlier this week, a federal judge barred the city from using newly drawn maps for city council seats, arguing they accounted too heavily for race. Wu told city councilors that the newly drawn map she submitted to them will keep neighborhoods intact within districts. This is a change from previously drawn maps. Wu has urged the council to agree on a map by the end of May ahead of city council elections this year. MBTA officials say they likely will not have enough staff to more reliably operate buses and trains for a decade at its current hiring pace. They said in a board of directors subcommittee meeting this week that the agency likely will not meet its staffing goals this fiscal year or next. The T has added 141 people to its staff in the last 10 months, taking into account people who have left. The Boston Globe reports that it has more than 7,000 budgeted positions for next fiscal year and a little over 5,000 active employees. The EPA is urging people across New England to check for smog alerts in the area as temperatures rise. The agency provides daily air quality data and smog forecasts at airnow.gov. EPA Regional Administrator David Cash says communities of color have to pay even closer attention to air quality. If you're a a member of one of these communities, you have a greater chance of ending up in the emergency room with your kid having an asthma attack. And our effort at EPA is to right that wrong. About 75 percent of the nation's fossil fuel plants are in communities of color. Several colleges and universities are holding their commencement ceremonies today. They include Worcester Polytechnic Institute, Babson College, UMass Lowell, Emanuel College, and Berkeley College of Music. Our forecast, mostly sunny today, upper 70s, mostly clear tonight, a low in the low 50s, and sun tomorrow, upper 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Community Conversations at the Cabot in Beverly with What's the Buzz About Home Energy, a free talk on sustainable home energy, May 25th, thecabot.org. And Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. President Biden spoke to voters about the debt ceiling in Westchester County, New York, this week. And in the audience was the district's congressman, a freshman Republican. Mike is the kind of guy that when uh, when I was in the Congress, they were the kind of Republican I was used to dealing with. That Mike is with us, Congressman Mike Lawler. Thanks so much for being with us, Representative. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. We spoke just a couple of weeks ago. Debt ceiling negotiations have been going on. Any closer to an agreement? Look, I think we obviously saw a little bit of progress this week uh, with the president and the speaker meeting. Uh, I know they are scheduled to meet again uh, this coming week. Uh, the staffs of both uh, have met, and you know, there's there's been a little a little uh, bit of a thawing. But you know, obviously, uh, when I met with the president on Wednesday, I took the opportunity to encourage him. Uh, to really find some common ground here. Uh, I think all of us have a responsibility uh, to avoid default. Uh, And as I said to the president, for me, throughout this entire process, I've had three parameters. The president and the speaker must negotiate. We must cut long-term spending, and we cannot default. And I think if everybody's willing to give a little, uh, we'll be able to, to get where we need to be. May I ask, what was the effect of Donald Trump saying in his uh, CNN town hall appearance, uh, and I quote, maybe we have to do a default? He has a lot of influence in your party. Uh, I don't think it has any effect. Uh, I think all of my colleagues understand that a default would be cataclysmic for our economy. Uh, and frankly, I heard nobody in our conference uh, after those remarks uh, agree with them. Do you think a short-term deal? Uh, might be needed to buy more time for a longer agreement? Uh, you know, if it comes to that, maybe. But but again, the objective here needs to be for everybody to get in the room, do what they need to do, and negotiate. This is, you know, we've, we've all known this is coming, so this should not be a surprise to anybody. Uh, the president took 97 days uh, to meet with the speaker after their first meeting. Um, we, we need to accelerate the conversations here. Uh, I don't think kicking the can down the road, uh, net, you know, is going to solve anything here. So the objective needs to be to, to find a solution as quickly as possible. Representative Waller, what, uh, I know you don't want to negotiate in public, but what would you tell fellow Republicans they might have to give up if they're going to get an agreement? Look, obviously we passed the Limit, Save, and Grow Act. Uh, which would save taxpayers $4.8 trillion over 10 years. Uh, the president, you know, has uh, voiced his opposition uh, to, uh, to that. Uh, but I think, you know, there are certainly areas of agreement uh, that we can find within it. The president previously supported work requirements. I don't see why he would be opposed to that. Uh, you know, obviously unspent and unallocated COVID funds. Uh, shouldn't be an issue. So I think there's areas within uh, the Limit, Save, and Grow Act that uh, the president could find agreement with. Uh, and the objective, of course, would be, uh, you know, for everybody to to give a little bit because that's the only way you find compromise. So, you know, obviously Republicans aren't going to get everything they want out of, uh, out of a, a final deal, but uh, neither is the president. So I think there's got to be a little give and take and, and find some area of agreement. Final quick question. Uh, Your fellow Congressman George Santos pleaded not guilty to 13 felony charges. Does his insistence on not resigning complicate the work of a small Republican majority? Look, ultimately, uh, he's not going to be long for this world. We all know that in terms of uh, elected office. Uh, So I've called for him to resign. Uh, If he had any dignity or decency, he would. Um, but seemingly he does not. And so, you know, the process will play itself out. Uh, and, you know, I suspect sooner rather than later, uh, he will no longer be a member of Congress. Congressman Mike Lawler, Republican of New York, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. The very 
popular former prime minister of Pakistan has been released on bail. His dramatic arrest Tuesday on corruption charges sparked protests across the country, some of them violent. We're joined now by NPR's Dia Hadid, who's been covering these events from Islamabad, the capital. Dia, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. You're welcome. A very eventful week. Tell us what happened, please. Well, let me just step back a bit and say the former Prime Minister Imran Khan was ousted from power last April after the army signaled that it no longer supported his rule. And since then, there's been an escalating crisis and conflict between Khan and the military. And the military is Pakistan's most powerful institution. It's always been revered and feared here. Last week, things took a turn when Khan accused a serving officer of masterminding what he says was an attempt on his life in November. In response, the army warned Khan to stop making inflammatory allegations. And then he was arrested. The images were dramatic. Dozens of paramilitary forces swarmed the Islamabad High Court. They smashed into an office to detain Khan. Are there specific charges? Yeah, ostensibly, this is surrounding a quite serious corruption case that Khan's embroiled in. But he was taken from a courthouse where he was seeking bail in that very case. And so his arrests triggered protests across Pakistan. His supporters smashed and burnt down army installations. It was unprecedented in this country. They even burst through the gates of the main army headquarters, and they were led by a middle-aged woman, which suggests how far the mood here has shifted away from the army. So the next day, I met a Khan supporter. Her name is Ruhi. And she told me Pakistanis like her had always worshipped the army until they began persecuting a man who they see as wanting to develop Pakistan. That is why the anger totally shifted to the forces. We need to get rid of these people so we can actually see the development in Pakistan. Need to get rid of these people. This is a sentiment that's rarely openly expressed here. Dear, what's the military saying now? Well, the military accuses Khan of incitement and says he's trying to push the country into civil war for political gain. They say Khan has done what Pakistan's enemies couldn't do in 75 years, and the government agrees. They say he's erratic, and they cite his history of making serious claims without evidence, like when he accused the Biden administration of overthrowing his government. Dear, given all their resources, does the military have the upper hand now? No, not quite. Uh, The Supreme Court ruled this week that Khan's arrest was illegal. And then on Friday, another court granted Khan two weeks bail in that very corruption case he was initially arrested for. I spoke to Khan then, and he even escalated his allegations when I asked him if he believed there was undeclared military rule in Pakistan. Are you saying it's undeclared martial law? Yes, I think it's being run by one man, the army chief. And hours later, he was released to a hero's welcome. Well, what happens now? There's a temporary reprieve, but in many ways, the fight appears to have escalated between Khan and the army. And in the backdrop, this is a nuclear-armed country. It's being battered by climate change. The economy is unraveling. Soaring food prices are pushing millions to the verge of starvation, mostly women and children. But it appears nothing will be really resolved until this conflict is dealt with. And Pierre's Dia Hadid in Islamabad. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. It's graduation season on college campuses, and it is Mother's Day weekend. And here is a story about a mother who overcame extraordinary challenges to finally get her degree. Liz Schlemmer with WUNC reports. 
Gabrielle Vanderkeil has waited seven years for this day. Her college career was disrupted by an unfortunate spinal cord injury. So she's using a power wheelchair, but that hasn't stopped Gabrielle from finishing college. She rolls across the stage to accept her diploma and back to the row where her family is cheering her on. At age 29, this mother now has a bachelor's degree in nursing. Despite her disability, she says her personal struggles aren't unique. I mean, it's just hard to go back to school in general, right? Like, life gets to you. And it really got to Gabrielle in 2016. She was just one semester away from finishing nursing school when she went home for winter break. Her brother attacked her. She landed in the ICU, then spent a year in rehab. It put her life on pause while her classmates graduated. Not being able to finish school in my last semester, I'm like, right, that was so not fair. Gabrielle is a quadriplegic. It wouldn't be possible for her to go back to school without her husband, Eric Vanderkeil. He went with her to class and helped her take notes. It's fun. I like it. I like being in class with her and just supporting her in a way that you know, most people aren't able to. Eric is a registered nurse. Now he's Gabrielle's full-time caregiver and partner in school and in life. Her family is also what motivated her to return to school, especially after giving birth to her daughter three years ago. It was a real healing journey, seeing her grow and just wanting to make her proud and make myself proud. Their daughter spent months in the NICU. They brought her home just as the pandemic hit. And up late at night with the baby, Gabrielle started to think about nursing school. You know, that's when you get your moments of inspiration is in chaos, right? Like you get so much clarity of what you want to do when you're in the midst of not being able to do it. Her husband, Eric, says he was on board right away. With Gabby having almost finished the program, going back feels like something in life is, is fair. There's always hardship, but there are those moments where you can see fairness, you can see triumph. Now with her degree, Gabrielle wants to be a case manager to help long-term care patients move forward in their own lives. For NPR News, I'm Liz Schlemmer in Greensboro, North Carolina. And you're listening to NPR News. Tomorrow is Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anyone else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBUR to strengthen our journalism. Your last chance to choose the perfect gift is today at noon. Go to WBUR.org. And join Here and Now co-host Robin Young on Tuesday, May 16th at City Space to explore toxic restaurant culture and how it can change. Free tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. The Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. 
I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. There is uncertainty at the southern border with Mexico over what happens now that the pandemic era restrictions known as Title 42 have ended. Border cities are bracing for a potential surge in migrants, but the Biden administration says border crossings are not as busy as predicted. The White House says yesterday's debt ceiling meeting between President Biden and top congressional leaders was canceled to give staff more time to find a solution. Negotiations are ongoing this weekend, and there are still hoops to jump through before the deal closes, but an agreement has been reached for the sale of the NFL's Washington Commanders. The record more than $6 billion deal must still be approved by league owners. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Much of the attention after the expiration of Title 42 has focused on Texas and El Paso, but the southern border is vast. And today we turn to another community, Las Cruces, New Mexico. It's at the edge of the Chihuahuan Desert and the Rio Grande, about 40 miles from El Paso. We're joined now by the mayor of Las Cruces, Ken Miyagishima. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. How do migrants make their way to Las Cruces? Well, we've actually had a few that have walked, but a lot of times they may catch a ride with individuals that probably shouldn't be bringing them over. For the most part, they kind of stay put in the El Paso area. However, they do seem to find their way through the desert and come in from other parts of New Mexico. So, I mean, it's pretty vast out there. It's really a rough terrain. Yeah. Are you making preparations for more people? No, so far it's been actually pretty smooth. We've got a report that they have about 6,164 in in um, detention. And so what they're doing is they're trying to do 1,000 migrants or process them a day. Now, the majority of them are not going to qualify for the asylum. See, that's the difference between Title Eight and Title 42. So Title Eight, which is now on, it switches to, okay, you need to give, the, you need to give so much background for you to even be considered for asylum. And only 5 or 10% will make it. The others will be turned back. What role has migrant or uh, asylum seeker resettlement uh, played in your city over the past few years? Because I I gather you're in your fourth term. Yes, sir. Right. When you add the six other years as a city councilor and the eight years before that as a county commissioner, all complete 30 years in public office, you know, we're used to people seeking asylum and our faith-based organizations do a great job. However, they're used to dealing with maybe five a month, one a week. And so in 2019, when when the government was dropping off 150 or so a day, 
that's where we had to really scramble because we, we knew the process. We just didn't have that capacity and the ability to handle that many. And so it was a, it was a fast learning curve. Yeah. You, you and the city council passed a resolution that called for federal immigration reform. What would you like to see? Well, one of the things is to be able to uh, have a little bit more consistency. So if you were to take someone who wanted a legal residency from uh, Nepal, they could get it pretty quick because they, the government allots probably 2,000 people from Nepal. Well, probably only a handful seek that. But then when, you, when you're talking, say, Mexico, there's only so many that they allot. And when that number hits, then it reverts back to the system of waiting for five, six, seven years. I think that really both parties are to blame. There's been times where one particular party had everything, the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they still couldn't get it done. So it's going to be a challenge. May I ask about your family? I, I understand you. Uh, your family knows immigration in a direct and personal way. Oh, sure. So on my paternal side, my dad's side, my grandfather immigrated from Japan in the 1920s. And then on my maternal side, my, my mom's side, probably around the same time they immigrated from Mexico. And so I'm, you know, I'm a product of, of migrants, immigrants as well. I was born in Mississippi. So there's probably not too many half Asian, half Hispanics born in Mississippi. But my dad was in the military and that's how I was born at Keesler Air Force Base, Biloxi, Mississippi. What would you like people living far north of the border to know? Well, I've heard people think that they take jobs away from Americans, and the jobs that immigrants will take are the jobs that, frankly, a lot of people don't want to do. And so they keep businesses going. You know, once they get that, uh, what they call I-10 number, which is a tax ID number for immigrants, that's why I'm a big supporter of having uh, immigration judges brought down here to the border so that those who do qualify, the 5 or 10%, that they could be given that I-10 number so that they could start working because then they can start providing for their families to send money back home, they can pay taxes, and they can probably contribute to a system that they may never even end up using the mayor of Las Cruces, New Mexico, Ken Miyakishima, thanks so much for being with us, Mr. Mayor. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Ukraine's counteroffensive is expected to begin any day now, and many wonder if it will include a push to take back Crimea. The Ukrainian peninsula, annexed illegally by Russia nine years ago, is seen as a red line for President Putin and this war's highest-stakes territory. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Tamila Tasheva heads the Crimea platform, a diplomatic effort launched by the Ukrainian government in 2021 to mobilize international support for returning Crimea to Ukraine. She's also Crimean Tatar, the peninsula's indigenous population who were deported by czars in the 19th century and then by Soviet leader Joseph Stalin after World War II. My grand-grandmother and father are deported in 1944. And when I'm five years old, I come back to Ukraine, to Crimea, with my parents. What year was that? 1981. 
the year the Soviet Union broke up and Ukraine became an independent country. Tasheva says in 2014, when Putin annexed Crimea, many residents thought being officially part of Russia would bring investment and Moscow-level prosperity. But the opposite happened. The West imposed sanctions, and she says Putin used the peninsula as a springboard to launch his full-scale invasion last year. Thousands of Russian soldiers are in Crimea. It's a really huge military base with a lot of military personnel. It's a really territory of fear. The Crimean Peninsula became part of the Russian Empire in 1783 after Catherine the Great's victory over the Turks. Crimea went on to become part of the Soviet Union. In 1954, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev officially transferred Crimea to Soviet Ukraine. This transfer of Crimea from Soviet Russia to Soviet Ukraine has been interpreted as a, as a mistake. Sometimes it's been thought of as this kind of superfluous gift. Cambridge University Crimea specialist Rory Finnan says it was more like a rescue. Crimea was an economic wreck after World War II and joining Ukraine actually revived it. Though our mental maps tend to associate Crimea with Russia, he says. But when we check an actual map, um, what we'll see is that Crimea has no natural physical connection to Russia. Crimea is an extension of the Ukrainian mainland, not only attached to southern Ukraine, but dependent on it. Historically and culturally, Crimea does hold a special place in the Russian collective imagination, says former Russian Duma member Ilya Ponomaryev. But he says Putin has completely misrepresented the peninsula as some kind of sacred Russian land. It's a Ukrainian land and the Ukrainians will liberate it and be totally in their right to do so. Ponomaryev, who lives in Kyiv, was expelled from Russia after being the only parliament member to vote against Putin's annexation of Crimea in 2014. It would be like, uh, I don't know, uh, somebody would occupy Florida and then say, oh, it's just a peninsula, you know, so just forget about it. Ben Hodges is a retired lieutenant general and former commander of U.S. forces in Europe. He says as long as Russia is in control of Crimea, there will never be lasting peace. It's like a dagger pointed at the belly of Ukraine. He believes if Ukraine can liberate Crimea, the war could be over this year. It's feasible that Ukraine can recapture and liberate Crimea if we give them what they need, which is primarily long-range precision weapons that could today make Crimea untenable for Russian forces. Many fear Putin could resort to using tactical nuclear weapons if Crimea is threatened. Hodges doesn't think so. For starters, China and India have said that would be unacceptable. What benefit would it give Russia to use a nuclear weapon? Zero. And the Russians know this. Their nuclear weapons are only effective as long as they don't use them because they see how we deter ourselves. The ground is already shifting in Crimea, says Envoy Tasheva. Repeated attacks on military bases, fuel depots, and bridges have meant that thousands of Russians who moved to Crimea after 2014 are selling their houses and leaving. And she says there's a new spirit of defiance. After full-scale invasion in Crimea, we have very active, different new movements. It's really huge numbers of people, and we don't have such kind activities before. Getting Crimea back using diplomatic and political means alone was impossible, says Tasheva. This war, as horrible as it is, gives Ukraine a real chance to liberate all of its territory. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kyiv.
And now to the dulcet theme music of B.J. Lederman. It's time for sports. The L.A. Lakers prevail, and the Georgia Bulldogs say no thanks to a White House visit. Howard Bryant of Metalark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott Simon. The Lakers, as I have to tell you, defeated the defending champion Golden State. Hey, we're no longer in Oakland Warriors last night, 122 to 101. LeBron scored 30 points. Uh, Lakers coach Darvin Ham said his fingerprints are all over this game. What did you think? I said goodbye to the champions. Um, you and I have had this conversation for many, many years now, almost a decade, where the end result was the same. I'll believe that the Golden State Warriors aren't yeah. going to be champions when somebody beats them four times. And, and finally, for the first time in a very long time, that we've seen them be taken out in the postseason uh, without reaching the finals. They had won 19 straight series against Western Conference opponents. It was a, a, a NBA record. And they did not look like a championship team this year, but it just looked that maybe they had found a way. They mm-hmm. were terrible on the road this season and yet won two games against Sacramento in the first round. But this, this Laker team completely retooled, made trades at the deadline, and suddenly they are four wins away from the NBA Finals, believe it or not. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, Those finals are almost set. Uh, Philly and Boston play Game 7 tomorrow. Miami beat the Knicks last night, uh, 96-92. What do you see in these playoffs? Well, I see a lot of teams playing possum with the regular season, this load management Mm -hmm. and giving guys rest and not quite knowing who these rosters really are and has really changed the complexion of the the postseason. So you've got an eight-seed Miami taking out the Knicks. So they're in the Eastern Conference Finals having required a play-in game to get there. And then you have the Lakers in the West, in the Western Conference Finals. They're a seven seed. So these teams were never as bad as they looked during the season. And they started using the regular season as a way just to, as a way station to get healthy for the postseason. Yeah. And Lo- now suddenly... Load management, that's called? That's called load management when, you know, or it's called consumer fraud when you go buy yeah. a ticket and you're, you're, the best players aren't playing that night. But what it's done to the regular season, I'm sorry, what it's done to the postseason yeah. is now you've got some really low, low seeds playing for championships when they really weren't that good during the regular season. Also, shout out to the Knicks as well. Great season for yeah. them and sort of just ran into a buzzsaw. But... Uh, the Miami Heat were in the Western, I'm sorry, Eastern Conference Finals last year, and they're here again. Very, very scary team. University of Georgia Bulldogs, national champion football team, uh, declined to visit the White House. They say it's a scheduling conflict. But recent years, we've seen a few players and teams decline to make visits. Are these ceremonial visits a victim of polarized politics? Yeah, it's a victim of who we are today, and I think it goes back. I think for me, remembering... I. I don't know when it really became super prominent for me. I think it was 2010 and uh, Barack Obama's uh, first term when Tim Thomas of the Boston Bruins chose not to go to the yeah. White House. And then, of course, it just sort of spiraled from there after the Trump presidency. And now it's it seems to be... It, this used to be the great... Uh, congratulations. This was the great perk of winning a championship. You got to go to the White House. How many of us ever get to go to the White House and are guests of the President of the United States? And today, it's much more of a political statement. And this is what happens when you have uh, a country as divided 
as we are right now, suddenly it's not a perk to go and suddenly it's something, it's a, it's a place where you make a statement. Yeah, I was deeply moved when President Obama received the Cubs at the White House, despite being a White Sox fan. Uh, <laughs> Howard Bright of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. It's happened to many of us. We share our lives with dogs. You're on a walk, then squirrel! Off they go, pulling you behind like a tin can. That happened on a winter's day in Washington, D.C. to Gina Epolito when Pemba, her lab shepherd mix, began to run. She went to cross the street at a faster pace than I could handle on the ice. Gina was five months pregnant with twins. I fell, slid on the sidewalk, landed on the ice, broke my wrist, and also then hit my belly. Gina Epolito went to the ER. Her babies were fine, but she spent the rest of her pregnancy with her arm in a cast. In fact, a new study from Johns Hopkins University says walking your dog is a very common way to get injured. We went to a dog park in Alexandria, Virginia, to investigate and throw some balls. Of the 24 people watching their dogs race around like jolly maniacs, two knew others who'd had their arms pulled out of socket walking their dogs. One knew of somebody who'd broken a collarbone. Three had taken tumbles themselves. This little scratch here on my knee <laughs> was just from this little guy here. That's Joycelyn Coleman rolling up her pants leg to reveal a three-inch scab. Her little guy is the majestic chow mix, Blaze. Ms. Coleman says she was texting when he saw squirrel. He pulls me back, of course. I fall down. I got up, dusted myself off. I was fine. Ms. Coleman says she's the one at fault. Blaze was just doing what dogs do. She's glad her tumble didn't land her in the ER. We found that dog walking-related injuries sent approximately 420,000 adults to United States emergency departments between 2001 and 2020, with an annual average of over 20,000 visits. Ridge Maxson of Johns Hopkins is the lead author of that new study looking at dog walking injuries. It shows that adults over 65 and women were particularly vulnerable to getting seriously hurt. But... Mr. Maxson says the benefits of dog walking for the owners, like exercise and emotional well-being, <laughs> who's a good boy, outweigh the risks. He says just exercise more caution. We recommend avoiding retractable leashes, as well as using shorter leashes, and most importantly, remaining aware of your surroundings and avoiding distractions for yourself, such as texting while walking, as well as your dog. So that can look like avoiding busy schoolyards or other areas where you know your dog is more likely to get distracted. Watch out. Don't want to blow out your ACL. That's another way to get injured. <laughs> Have a dog slam into you while you're standing in the dog park. Back in Alexandria. Squirrel! Mark Voss says that his two big hunting dogs rolled into the ground a few weeks ago in the rain. Actually, I have a little bit of tenderness still in my hip. Mark Voss knows that fall could have been a lot worse. Just as he knows, Memphis and Maybelline cannot resist a good chase. You know, there may be times where I might have been a little lazy in the past and say, ah, that is an awesome hound bark. But I'll be more diligent and vigilant when I'm walking them 
to make sure that I am looking for any distraction that might make them want to pull, whether it's a dog or a squirrel or a bird, you know, a Sasquatch, whatever it is that they're going after. I just have to be very proactive and careful. Our other dog owners say leash training helps keep them on their feet and they're good boys and good girls. Well, they say, <laughs> sort of those treats. Thank you, babes. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The Wellesley Teachers Union voted Friday night to ratify a new four-year contract holding off the possibility of a strike. This agreement replaces one that expired last June. The school committee had asked the State Department of Labor Relations to strike as early as Monday. The superintendent of a regional vocational school in Lexington has been placed on administrative leave. Minuteman High School's school committee is appointing an independent investigator to look into complaints against Superintendent Kathleen Dawson. And today is Dam Day at Wachusett Reservoir in Clinton. The top of the 200-foot-tall Wachusett Dam will be open to visitors from 2 to 5 for one of only two times during the year. The next day visitors can walk across the top of the dam will be Columbus Day weekend. 72 degrees sunny at 940. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? Your siblings, your joy, your curiosity? This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity. Your last chance to choose the perfect gift is today at noon. Go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Just about a dozen years ago, almost half the cell phones in America were Blackberries. Phone with a small gray screen that got email above a keyboard that had real keys. It was devised by a small Waterloo, Ontario company called Research in Motion with a CEO named Jim Balsillie who probably wouldn't get through a company HR department today. Mike? Hi. There are three reasons why people buy our phones. Do you know what they are? We're email. They work. Yeah, okay, it's not us, Jim, it's the carrier. Verizon is doing something weird. Okay, well, I'm about to do something weird if you don't fix this, now! Um, the deal was, I get the engineers, I... you shrink the data! Now that's dialogue. 
Glenn Howerton plays Jim Balsillie in the new Canadian film Blackberry. It's directed by Matt Johnson. It also stars Jay Barrowkell, Saul Rubinek, and Carrie Elwes. Glenn Howerton, best known from that long-running series, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, joins us from our studios in Culver City, California. Thanks so much for being with us. I am thrilled to be here, and I'm not even kidding. We're thrilled to have you. Thank I, you. I'm going to guess Jim Balsillie may not like how he's shown in this film. Do you know <laughs> if he has any reaction? <laughs> Jim's been great. I think he definitely took a little bit of issue with maybe a little bit of the belligerence of the character at times. And I think he would argue, I think he said in a in an interview after having seen the film the first time that he feels like he's funnier than the way he was portrayed. Oh. But I but I did get a chance to meet him in Toronto at the at the Canadian premiere and he was absolutely lovely. And he was there. He was there. Yeah. He came, he took pictures with us. I gave him a big bear hug, which I don't think he was expecting. And uh he was absolutely lovely. Oh. Um, you made a conscious decision about how to uh, how to portray the hairline, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I don't think I had any choice. I mean, Jim is who Jim is, so I had to uh, I had to emulate at least that aspect of Jim, and um, I didn't feel like wearing a bald cap, so I I shaved it. Yeah. What was the secret sauce that this company came up with that made the BlackBerry so successful for at least a few years? Well, that's a good question. I'm sure the answer would be different depending on who you ask. I do think that their ability to create a product where you could not use your minutes in order to text at the time. So that was that was pretty novel. I think people really honestly just enjoyed the click of the keyboard. I mean, mm. when you hear from any BlackBerry user, um, many of whom have come out of the woodworks, like a lot of people really, really miss their Blackberries. They are they're not happy that that's not a thing anymore. And a lot of people miss that that signature click. Now, me personally, I never had one, so I don't understand how you can even get your thumbs on those buttons. But uh, I think because it changed everyone's life so much who had one. Uh, began to associate a sort of new way of communication with that device and therefore had a lot of love for it. Yeah. Jim Balsillie was, I, I think it's safe to say, he came from the sales part of the business world, not the techie part. Definitely. Did he have a vision? I think he did have a vision. I think he always had a vision for whatever he was doing. I think he truly was an extraordinarily smart man, you know, for whatever faults he may have in terms of his approach to to sales and business. Uh, I think there's no denying that he was extraordinarily effective at his job. And I think when he saw that there was a massive niche in the market and had an opportunity to fill that, it was an opportunity for him to show what he's really made of. And uh, he was a hell of a salesman. Is it safe to say, given the vast success you've had in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, you've kind of made a specialty of making truculent characters yeah. worth watching? Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's definitely fair to say. Uh, I enjoy playing very intense people, I have to admit. Um, although now that I've been doing some version of that for so many years, I'm I'm quite anxious to to just play a super laid back person. I just don't know how dramatically interesting that'll be for people, but I just don't want to. It's it's exhausting being that uh, truculent, as you put it. <laughs> Do you have um, any thinking about why the iPhone took over so totally? I think it was sexier. I think that first and foremost, it just. Mm. It was just a more elegant uh, device. Now, some people may disagree with that, but I think, you know, for as impractical as I think a lot of BlackBerry users felt like it was to type on that uh, 
on that type of keyboard, um, there was no denying the the sex appeal of the iPhone. It was just it's just a beautiful device. Jim Balsley doesn't seem, at least to us Americans, very Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that was my fault. Uh, <laughs> you mean the real Jim or me? Well, I don't know the real Jim. Um, That's fair. Well, with the exception of this um, characteristic, he does love his hockey, right? Yes. Yes, he does. Yes. And that's that's quite true of, of the real Jim. He tried. Uh, we only show a small part. I think that you could do an entire film just about his uh, quest to bring another team to Canada. I think he tried on three separate occasions and, and, and failed. But he became a real hero in Canada for uh, for what he was doing, in spite of the fact that he never quite pulled it off. Yeah. Do you think this uh, this story you tell in Blackberry has anything to tell us now? The next time we hear about the next big thing that can't miss on the mm -hmm. horizon. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can watch the the movie, and and certainly there are there are takeaways. At the end of the day, I think it's I think our goal really was to just make it a highly highly entertaining thriller slash comedy uh, that that would just be you know, a, a, a thrill uh, to watch. But yeah, I do think there's there's a little bit of a cautionary tale there, but it depends on your definition of success. If your definition of success is, you know, to stay on top at all times and, and constantly have whatever company you're working for constantly pivoting to meet the next uh, demands of, of the world of technology, then you could say that BlackBerry was a, a failure in that regard. But if if you consider the fact that they were running a $30 billion uh, massive, massive company out of a small town in Ontario, you could also argue that they were extraordinarily successful. And the fact that they didn't pivot is secondary to that. Glenn Howerton stars in Blackberry. Thank you so much for being with us. You know, you're much nicer than the guy you portray on screen. I, Any I, screen I've ever seen you on. <laughs> I, yeah, people are sometimes surprised when they see me smile. Well, thanks very much for uh, smiling through this interview. Thanks so much. <laughs> I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. With inflation and the high cost of grain due to the war in Ukraine, Egyptians struggle with hunger. The Cairo Food Bank is helping supply residents with basics that many have come to think of as little luxuries. Dates, rice, cooking oil, lentils, pasta, tomato sauce, sugar, and tea. That's later today on All Things Considered. You can listen live at your local station's website or at npr.org. An unsigned postcard arrives at the Berest home in Paris in January of 2003. A photo of the Opera Garnier is on the front. On the back, no message, just four names written in ballpoint pen. Ephraim, Emma, Noemi, and Jacques. The names were of writer Anne Beres's maternal great-grandparents and their children who had died in Auschwitz. But it takes 16 more years for her to try to find out who sent that postcard and why and what that story discloses about her family. Anne Beres, The Postcard, was a huge bestseller in France and has now been published in the United States. And uh, Anne Beres joins us now from New York. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Why is this a novel? It's also a real story. It's a novel, but I often say it's a true novel because all the events are true. But I wanted to write it in a novelistic way 
For example, I changed the name of the village where my family were arrested because I didn't want that the inhabitants of this village now had trouble because of my book. I changed the name of uh, people who bad behaviored uh, during the war because I didn't want the grandchildren of these people had the trouble now and that people say, okay, I know that your grandfather or your grandmother uh, denounced Jewish during the war. So that's why I called it a novel, because I took the liberty as a writer to change little things. That's very generous of you. You didn't want the grandchildren of people who did harm to your family to suffer today. Yes, exactly. The um, story traces back to uh, Emma and Ephraim Rabinovich. Does their experience remind us that the Holocaust didn't stand out alone? It was the culmination of centuries of anti-Semitism all over Europe. You have to understand the silence of the Jews uh, in France uh, after the Second World War, because after the war, uh, they were afraid to speak out, because uh, one must bear in mind that they were still living in fear, because that fear was so ancient in Europe. They thought that the denunciations could start again. My grandmother, after the war, baptized my mother in a church to protect her. And many Jews did the same in France after the war. So in the book, I give the example of one of my friends whose parents changed their Jewish names to French names in the mid-60s. It's incredible to think about it. It was the mid-60s in France, and Jews wanted to change their names because they'd always said it can happen again. There are sections of the book, especially about life and death in Auschwitz, that are very detailed and difficult to read. You talk about the ways in which prisoners were humiliated and brutalized and lied to up until the moment they were in the gas chambers. Was it especially important to you to tell people about those details? Yes, because this book for me is a book of transmission. If a teenager today read a, a novel and he, he loves the novel, it means that one day he will open an historical book. The historical passages were particularly difficult to narrate in the book. I'm not an historian, but I worked as an historian. I read all the books I could. I watched all the documentaries I could. I want to say that there is not a single sentence in these passages that is invented. I simply wanted to be the link between yesterday's witnesses and today's readers. 
According to the Anti-Defamation League, anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise in the United States. They're on the rise in Europe. This is 80 years after the Holocaust, where the world saw where that could lead. Why do you think anti-Semitism is on the rise again? It's a big question, and you know, I, I'm not an historian. As a writer, I can say that now I'm still afraid when I see all the signals in our society. What signals do you see in French society or America? I can't uh, speak about America because I never speak about things I don't really know. In France, yes. I can say that I hear and I see people becoming paranoid against Jews, even in a part of society that you couldn't imagine. Even, for example, in my literary world, I can see and hear things that I couldn't imagine before and that they are very, very dangerous. And when I was a child and I heard all Jews say, okay, be careful, anti-Semitism will uh, come back again, I thought it was wrong. But now I know that they were true. What um, do the discoveries that Anne, in your novel and in your life, makes about her past and her Judaism put into her life today? Before I wrote this book, I knew nothing about my ancestors. And uh, while working uh, on my family tree, I discovered a lot of things, a lot of some strange coincidences uh, that I explain in the book, and I will not uh, uh, spoil it. But these coincidences are for me invisible transmissions. You see that things that, that your ancestors give to you and you don't know. And this idea of invisible transmission is one of the main themes of my book. And I have read articles on cellular memory. You see how our cells have a memory of the emotions. It's a scientific way to explain that our ancestors still live within us and that we still communicate and connect with our ghosts. It seems that in my case and with my Jewish family, they are not totally dead. They were not totally murdered because something still lives in me. Anne Berest, her novel, The Postcard, translated by Tina Cover, has now been published in America. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, 
supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There is so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. GardnerMuseum.org. Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back, from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR and you'll support the station that has your back. Your last chance to choose the perfect gift is today at noon. Go to WBUR.org. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.